Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Ah, kia ora no tātou. Ah, kia ora tātou e tau nei. Ah, i runa i te kaupapa. E whakarau i ka nei tātou, kai roto i te nei whare. Ah, kai aku pāpā, rereata, e tame. Ah, ko te nui nā, me ki... O nga ati whātua, o nga mana whenua, kai, kai pipitea, kai te tini keke rā nei. Uh, hueno, uh, ka ki mai a te tohuna a o tene, e wā, māu e haere, ki te mihi atu, uh, ki te marea e tai mai. Nō reira, kai aku pāpā, e hara tēnei, kai konei, hei whakaiti, hei takai i te mana, a o nga ati whātua, a waiake. Awe ake, awe ake. A nō reira, kia koutou katoa. Kia koutou katoa i nā iwi, o tāmaki makaurau, o tāmaki herena waka, o tāmaki herena tanata. Haramai, haramai, haramai. Haramai i runa i te kaupapa hei whakawhitiwhiti kōrero, hei whiua i nā pātai, arā ki nā tohuna, ki nga apataki rā nei, ko tēnei kaupapa, ko te Māori o te wai. A nō reira kāre hia hia ki te tōro hia i tēnei mihi. Nau mai, nau mai, haramai rā, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, hau mie, uie, tāi kiwe. I mua i taku mutsuna e te pāpā rereata. Kai te are are mai oku nei tarina ki o kōrerora. Hei hoki whakamuri ki nga whakapapa o te ao kāneanea tana o te ao tawhito e a hei koe ki te hono hono te rā ao ki te anaea nei e pāna ki te wai. Nō reira, ki a tātou katoa, te nakoutou, te nakoutou, uie, haumie, naumai, haramai, tāi kie. Te reira will translate. Kia ora. Thank you, Richard. Essentially, for those of you who aren't fluent in Rau, essentially what Richard said was, G'day, you fellas, welcome. On behalf of Ngāti Whātua, of whom there are only three currently left in Auckland, the rest are down at that beautiful cultural celebration in Wellington at the Cake Tin. To here, beside the cool waters of the Waitemata, looking out at that iconic island of Rangatoto, an island that my three-year-old daughter is obsessed with because of its historical connections as a place of refuge for Jin the Otter, for those of you who remember that wonderful resident of Auckland many years ago. For those of you who don't know me, Kia ora ko te reira, tāko wingawa, ko Ngāti Pākehā aho. Like many of you here in Auckland, I am an immigrant, Tāmaki Makaora, originally from the Waikato, wedged in between Lake Waikari and the Waikato River, which back when I grew up with it was not going to be a source of drinking water for Auckland. If you'd said it at that stage, we would have found that the funniest thing we had ever heard, and I probably would not have moved to Auckland. Nonetheless, now here I am, as many of you are. Just as a show of hands, how many immigrants to Auckland now living here? To Tāmaki Makara, pretty much everybody. For me now, I now recognise my maonga, Waiatarua. I look out of my window at the beautiful rainforest that is the Waitakere Ranges. And I'm wedged in just beside my new river, Ko Oponuku Te Awa. 
Uh, beautiful little river out there. It winds in part of the twin streams in behind Corbin's. I'm just, in terms of the water size, I'm just out of the flood catchment uh, on there. Looked at that when I was wanting to land bank and subdivide the other day because, you know, I'm in Auckland. Um, and one of those great things, and it'd probably be a great example of the nature of this conversation we've had. I've lived there for nearly uh, 12 or 15 years, and of course the locals would say, never floods here anymore, doesn't flood here anymore. They've changed it, they've fixed it. Sure enough, what did it do two years ago? Flooded up to there. That is the nature of water. And I had the great pleasure, one of, I think one of the great joys and privileges of this city, um, driving across that causeway uh, on the northwestern and looking out at the glowing waters of uh, my new Moana, uh, the inner harbour of the Waitamata. Um, Looking at those boats that are moored there, the sandy beaches of Point Sheev and Teatatu Peninsula. Looking out there at that breeding ground of all of those little sharks and things, all the fish that come in, all the food source that is there, and that recreation area that is so important to the people of Auckland. This huge region, region that we're in, primarily in many ways rural, but none of us more than 20 k's from the sea. And we have, think, um, when it comes to water, we have this very intense spiritual connection with it uh, in New Zealand, both as Māori, um, that's being recognised in some of the conversations we're having around water, and I think certainly as Pākehā as well, maybe more so than, than other places around the world. Uh, and then driving past in there, past Oakley Creek, past that wonderful little waterfall that sits there, past Western Springs, that historical source of water, um, and now kind of a, a fetid duck pond. Uh, and I'm then along down here to the waterfront. Um, to the beautiful waters of the sparkling harbour. But of course, it's not just what is seen when it comes to water, it's the unseen as well. And I know that coming down here underneath me, a labyrinth of pipes for those three waters, the wastewater, the drinking water, um, the stormwater, all being um, taken care of by people who I like to think of, I saw some people before in the wastewater sector, people who just bury money under the ground and take care of things. And I, and I do a lot of work uh, at wastewater conferences, and I say one, they're, they're kind of the under... No one really thinks about uh, stormwater uh, until there's a flood, and then suddenly there's a flurry of phone calls. All of that work that is done that costs all of that money that makes this place a better, a cleaner, a safer place to live just goes on. And, and I think for many people, um, absolutely unrecognised. So we are here to discuss water tonight. I'm facilitating this cordero on, on water. Um, and it's giving us a chance to inspire and stimulate our thinking around the challenges that are facing Auckland um, in its widest context. Tonight we have a wonderful speaker. We have a panel to discuss uh, our water future. And we have the chance for you to ask questions as well. One of my favourite things as an MC, you've all found your way to this building here on the beautiful harbour. I'm not going to tell you how to leave. So in the unlikely event of an emergency, um, the exits are pretty clearly marked. Head back down the stairs. Depending on what the nature of the emergency is, if it's a fire, there are no shortage of wonderful bars along the waterfront that you can sit in and just have a quiet beer and think, we're not getting back in there. Um, if it's anything else, head just down and just make your own way home. Um, the other important evacuation points, the bathrooms are located at the rear of the room. Um, wait staff will show us out, uh, and if you do have a mobile phone, feel free to just put it onto silent. Um, we may use that phone later in the course of the evening for our first presentation and, of course, for your ability to ask questions later on. And these wouldn't happen, of course, um, without the generosity of the council and their partners. So thanking our Auckland partners, uh, South Base Construction, the design partner, Rosine, and all of the other programme supporters. Ladies and gentlemen, um, what about a round of applause for those people who have made these conversations happen? So the format for tonight, very simple. We're going to have a keynote presentation from uh, uh, Rarieta Makiha. 
followed by a discussion with uh, our panellists. We're going to open up the discussion as well to the floor. We're going to be using Slido. Just a show of hands. How many people have been to a conference and used Slido before? Some of you will be familiar with it. It's, it's pretty simple. It's an interactive Q&A tool uh, for audience questions. We'll show you how to use that. If you have a smartphone, we encourage you to visit slido.com. So it's at slido.com. Um, enter the event code, which is simply hashtag water and you can ask your question through that. We're going to look to get through as many of those questions as we can. Um, you can also submit your question during the course of the evening from the floor, and I know there are people at home, kia ora to you, you are more than welcome, I think, to go onto that slido and ask questions from the comfort of your lounge or your deck or, where, or your bus as you sit um, in transport thinking, geez, if only we'd invested in a bus lane on this particular section of the motorway, I could be home asking my question from the lounge. So. Welcome to all of you. Um, and you, for those of you on social media, whatever platform that may be, you're also welcome to um, use the hashtag to tweet anything about this with the hashtag uh, Auckland or AKL Conversations. Uh, we always try to ensure that Auckland Conversations are inclusive and accessible, so on-demand viewing of the event, that's happening now. A full transcript and captioning of this event and presentations are going to be available on the Auckland Conversations website in the next few days. All right, any questions? There's going to be no shortage of time for those later on. So tonight's conversation. Water quality is becoming an issue for Auckland. From believing that water was plentiful and free to now facing the impacts of water scarcity, poor water quality and the effects of climate change, the question is what can we do about it? I don't know about you, but even the very fact of the humidity that we're currently experiencing, Auckland is too wet as far as I'm concerned. And of course, the, um, if you've been following the news of the cyclone that may or may not be coming down here, I know there's a lot of professionals in the industry who've been looking at that, um, as well as people who will be attending all of the many functions around Auckland over the course of the next few days uh, over the weekend. So a value-based approach connects uh, the decisions around what matters most. When we talk about values, we're describing what is important to us. And those values, of course, differ for everybody, but they're the deep connections that we have between water, the environment, and, of course, people. We all have a responsibility and an interest in working together to ensure that decisions are around our water future um, are made and not deferring the problem um, for future generations to, to resolve. So looking beyond that kind of three-year election cycle and looking forward to those decisions that will affect people in 10, in 15, in 20 years' time. And there are some very big decisions to be made. And there are obviously different ideas on how we protect and enhance uh, Te Māori or Te Wai. And we believe that this is an exciting space for discussion and collaboration. So tonight, we aim to start a conversation about how we change uh, the way we think about and value one of our most precious resources, water. And you've only had to live um, without water for any period of time, even the few short hours that uh, Watercare has the water turned off to fix an outage in your street. Or indeed, if you've travelled anywhere in the world to know just how precious water is. I was thinking about it the other day. I was filling a watering can. I turned on a tap. And I just, I, I just marvelled. I was with my, as my little three-year-old, and I was trying to explain to her how precious this gift of relatively free pure water coming out of a tap is, we take it for granted. Uh, a lot of people growing up in a city will never, particularly Auckland, will never have experienced um, water shortfalls in a way. They turn a the tap on, water comes out, they flush the toilet, it goes away again. For that tiny little bit in the middle, they know nothing of the sort of the infrastructure and the expense and the work on either side of that little moment in their time. For those of you who live in rural catchments, you'll know at this time of the year there's um, very good money to be made in hauling water and tankers to fill people's tanks. Um, uh, people have got their gardens deciding whether or not, my neighbour deciding whether or not as, as a pensioner she'll put water onto her garden or not. These are all little things that we all have to think about in this water debate. So, to set the scene, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce uh, our first speaker. Eriata 
Makiha is a Maori astrologer, a renowned Maori astrologer, one of the leading authorities on uh, the Maramataka, the Maori lunar calendar. Um, for anyone who's seen that incredible moon that came up the other day, it was just, I came back from the airport, I'd been down in Invercargill where there was pleasant rain and um, relatively cool temperatures um, and flew back into Auckland and there was that incredible moon rising over the city. He is uh, currently conducting research on how to determine the phases of the Māori lunar calendar with Auckland University and how Māori and past manage their lives and tasks in accordance with uh, Maramataka, including the fishing, the planting, the harvesting, all of course dependent on the lunar cycle and other signs within nature. And if you are looking at that lunar cycle, uh, you'll have seen it even mentioned in the news today in relation to the cyclone that's coming down. King tide looking as if it may also coincide with that. Um, all of these things blending together into the synthesis of the environment, the lunar calendar, and the way that we treat the world in which we live. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Reriata Makiha. Akati kia mai rātātou. Uh, te mea tuatahi tēnā koe e te rewihi mai nei uh, kia mātou. Uh, tēnā hoki koe tame pupuri nei hoki te mano te wāhi nei. Uh, tēnā hoki rā koutou kua pai mai nei uh, ki roto tēnei hui huinga. I won't delve too long on uh, replying uh, to the mihi because I've been given about 15 minutes uh, to capture the essence of 15,000 years of observation so. Thanks very much. <laughs> so, and and uh, to make a confession right up front that I'm not a student of academia, I'm a student of oral histories. And so a lot of the referencing and the things I'm going to talk about, you will not find them written anywhere. Uh, they were passed down through the schools of learning brought over by Nukutafiti on the uh, Ngātoki Matafaurua, along with the companion Waka the Māmari, captain by Ruanui. Uh, when they arrived, they set up what was called uh, the Whatupunga Punga, uh, the Māori uh, Ao Wharewānanga from Hokianga. And that's where I have to make a confession. Everything I talk about uh, tonight is from Hokianga. So, uh, and how you make it work over here, I have no idea. Uh, but thank you all for being so concerned about uh, what's happening with our waterways and also um, thank you for coming along uh, to listen to these ramblings from a poor example of Santa Claus. But I wanted to divide the room up into four, you know, because in 15 minutes time I want us all to be connected back to water. And we can do that. Uh, so if we imagine uh, that the front here back down to the middle, um, if you're allowed in these, in my sessions, to have your cell phones on, okay? And for those of you who've got a Huawei 5G, that's even better because it'd be faster than anyone else, okay? Uh, the, and if we have sort of four groups uh, up the front here, um, uh, you're allowed to turn your cell phones on and what I want you to do was to actually check the high tides for March the 21st. The high tides for March the 21st. And then the group down the... Uh, sorry, uh, good question. Auckland. We're going to use East Coast. Since we're on this side, we're going to use the East Coast Maramataka. Um... And the group down the back, uh, can you have a look at 
doing the same date, March the 21st, West Coast. Onehunga. And then the group down the back, number three. Can you have a look at the tides for March the 29th? I'll explain it later on, the, the tides uh, for March the 29th. And then you guys up the, ah, uh, sorry, the also West Coast. Also West Coast. And you guys up the front here, can you also be West Coast but have a look at the uh, 4th of April. 4th of April, the tides, also west coast. So there's one east coast and three west coast tides. Kapai, And I'll explain it later on. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about is what we were brought up in our whole histories to understand uh, water. We need to take us all back to a time uh, that was uh, when everything was water. So our tūpuna talked about Wainui Atea. And from Wainui Atea, uh, there was kōrero, the Hawaii katotea. The world was water. And from Wainui Atea came the expansive different kinds of the oceans. We had Moananui, the great ocean, Moanarua, the long ocean, Moanapotango, the dark ocean, and Moanahakere, the gloomy ocean. And then we get to Moana to Kitewo, and these were the inland lakes. Uh, and then we had Moana to Kiterepo, and these were the wetlands and swamplands that have been drained for farming. The natural filtration of all our awa and all the rivers and that came from Moana to Kiterepo. And in our understanding of water, uh, that water, everything, all waters, go to Tangaroa Whakamautai, or go to the ocean, to the salt water. Uh, and here's the interesting thing about our understanding of the, uh, of the water, uh, is that there is a whakapapa uh, to wai, uh, to water. It's, a, it's the Māori version of that water cycle that's been taught in schools. Okay, but listen to the difference. Uh, this is some our Māori worldview of the water, the whakapapa to water. Right at the top between Whakatauānuku and Whakatauārangi, there's, uh, there are two companion waterways called Pipi and Wawai. And Pipi is the punawai, the water that bubbles up out of the ground, and Wawai is the aquifer. And they lead the whakapapa to wai. They are high up in our conversation on wai. Not today, okay? Those punawai are subverted to an afterthought. But those were the most important uh, water sources that our tūpuna understood. So Pipi and Wawai, uh, those were the, 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 uh, the what we call punawai, uh, that spring up out of the ground, and Wawai was the deep water aquifer. And there was clear a process in tikanga around accessing that water. Um, and so even while, when we were growing up to go and get that punawai, we had, there were special, um, what are they, uh, containers that you used to go and get that punawai. 
You did not use anything else. Nothing uh, had to be tainted. You, you couldn't use uh, any of your utensils from the kitchen, for example, uh, that had any kai in it to go and get that way. It was very sacred and very strictly policed too. Now, Auckland survived because of all those punawai, those pipi and the wawai, uh, back in the early days before water care was born. Um, so all Aucklanders, but today, to go and find those punawai, uh, many of them would have been destroyed in, in the reconstruction of Auckland into a city. So the interesting thing about uh, pipi and wawai is that uh, there are really, really strict, sacred protocols around those, around those waterways. And there's one actually in the School of Engineering in Newmarket. They took it over from Lion Breweries. There's one down there, and I think they put a cap on it. And the pipi should never be kept. It should be flowing all the time. And that's the source of water that kept our people alive. So when the waka came in, uh, when uh, Thomas Tupuna brought that waka in, uh, the first thing they looked for was pipi. Uh, pipi and why were, oh, the lion breweries, yeah. Later on, they looked for the lion breweries. Um, but that, um, and what they did was they planted puraka around those uh, punawai. Puraka is a, a species of taro, we call it the purple taro. And it takes years, so like to get about that big, takes about 20 years. But the purpose for that is to mark those punawai. And those punawai were always surrounded by fiki, uh, one of the, the lower growing tree ferns that we, we know, fiki. Ponga was the bit high, the silver fern that we know, and then the mamaku, the real tall one. The fiki, the low growing one. Uh, they were always around those punawai. So they had the, the puraka, and then they put some eels in the tuna into these punawai uh, to keep the, keep the puna clean. And what happens was, didn't matter where you went, uh, sailed around for years, you might come back 10 years later to that spot, you had kai and you had wai. And there is the connection from this corridor that I'm going to introduce to you from Tukaki Waititi, who was from Ngāti Hine and Te Whānaua Apanui. And Tukaki Waititi's corridor is this. And all our environmental work is based around this corridor of his that encapsulates the intent of what we try and do in the environment. He said, Ka hore heaha i hangatia i yahu no mairane kia noho wehe i tēnei ao. A hakua matangaro ka mōhiotia te mauri. So nothing was ever created or emerged in this world to live in isolation. So that even a hidden face can be detected by its impact on something. Okay, so the way when we look at why we don't look at it in isolation. Even though the many, many variations of why, we look at it in terms of having a companion, because everything has a companion. And the companion to why, from our Māori worldview, is kai. You get rid of kai, you die. You get rid of why, you die. So that's the constant companion to why, is kai. And so when we look at Modi, I've been asked to talk about Modi, and I said to Tommy, eh, how do we explain something we don't see and can't see and can't imagine? Well, we can imagine it, but then if we did that, everyone in the room would have an imagination about what a Modi is. Um, 
And so to understand it, if we try to understand the old people put the things they did, could not understand, could not see, they put them into kind of like a category. And one of the categories is matangaro. And matangaro is a hidden face, okay? Uh, Modi sits in that realm of matangaro, of the hidden face. And how you detect the presence of a Modi, uh, in, even in people, uh, but especially in waterways, which we're talking about here, is the presence of kai in that waterway. Right? You know, so you, when we go down to the waterways, um, up home there, and the first thing you have a look for is where's the watercress patch? And then you have a look and see what's also in there. Oh, lots of tuna in here. Lots of karawaka, papane, kokopu, all that type of things. The more you have uh, food in that, in that environment, the healthier that particular water source is. So kai is the indicator to the health of wai. So when we're talking about Maori order, we look at the impact or the uh, um, we look at the presence of food in the in that waterway. And what about tohu waterang? You see, we had some interesting things about people talking about the kaumote wai and you know about water quality. And then they go and get these chemicals and they test for other chemicals in the waterway. And I say to Simon, what are you doing that for? You know, at the time of uh, around about November, October, November, I said, listen to the sounds of the birds. So we take kids outside and I said to, we're testing the water quality of the Otara Creek this, in this particular instance. So I will take the kids out in the car park. We don't need to go down to that creek. And so I asked the kids, what can you hear? And they said, nothing. I said, so that waterway is no good. So let's go back inside. And oh, hang on, hang on. What should you be hearing at this time? And it's a bird called a kotari, uh, the kingfisher. The kingfisher at that time of the year is feeding its babies. And it never, uh, I mean, all good mothers, they don't go and uh, t take their babies to a place that's got no food. Hey. So when we were growing up along the Taheke River, there were just hundreds of kotari. And so if you hear one kotari in, on the river, then that's yeah, sort of marginal. If you hear three or four, then the, you know, you're starting to rise at about a five or six measurement. But then if you see multiple kingfishers or kotari in those waterways, that waterway is good. And that's how we, we understand to comb out their way, just by listening to that. That's fresh water, by the way. The salt water... Uh, indicator for the kaumote way is the kāruhiruhi, uh, the pied shag. So there's a companion too for, for Māori. Uh, Māori is a matangaro, but there's also a companion uh, how our uh, old people understood other things that you couldn't see, and that was called matahuna. So electricity is a matahuna. Right? You can't see it. The difference between matahuna and matangaro is that there are consequences if you get things wrong. Yeah. So gravity, I presume, would be, uh, would be a matahuna as well. Uh, you can't see it, but there are consequences if you get it wrong. And so we come down to the corridor around like the spring water I was telling you about, the special, special protocols in, in accessing that water. Uh, so we get to this corridor around tapu. Okay, tapu is also a matahuna because there are consequences if you get things wrong. And I have to be careful too whenever I talk about this to make sure that there are 
I know uh, gentlemen around in long white trench coats because you're starting to delve into a Okay, I wrote uh, lots of uh, word triggers down here. So what I want to talk about uh, some of the other connections too that we understand for why. So we only got to Pipi and Wawai, yeah. So we're going to go back there. That's why I have word triggers here. Uh, we got Pipi, Wawai. The next layer of those waters is Taitua and Taiaro. And those are the surface waters that you see, you know, in our creeks and rivers and that. There's Taitua and Taiaro. But here's the real cute one. Hamuimui and Uepapatangaroa. Those are companion waterways that, where you get fresh water underneath the sea. And there are people down in, the, in Ngati Pro and also in Tauranga Mona who know where these, um, where these aquifers are that bubble up through this, and they actually go out onto the salt water to get fresh water. Uh, they're very guarded, those areas, uh, but that's the access from of those uh, fresh waters that fall out of the sky, and then they come down uh, out into Tangaroa Whakamotai, and the freshwater aquifers, that's how they find their way into Tangaroa Whakamotai, through these access ways called Hamuimui and Uepapatangaroa. And then we head into that water cycle of uh, evaporation, is it? That's what they, yeah, yeah. Anyways, things start heating up steam, and they go up. Uh, we get Uwe Pohewa and Tautini, and then they rise up into the sky, into clouds, and all you, you all know the water cycle. But in the Māori version of it, you get up to Te Maruārangi, and a really cute, and I hope no one takes this, uh, this next name as, uh, as your next Christian name that you're going to give to your baby. It's Māroro Tua Uriuri Te And that is when those thunder clouds and all that comes back. And then we get the rain. And the rain is signified in our legends anyway that there are tears uh, from Ranginui after the, he was separated from Papa Tuanuku, the Earth Mother. And so when the rain comes down, it's sacred, very sacred, so sacred that we were not permitted to drink it. And so that rain was captured uh, in in glass bowls that had no kai in it, very tapu, you know, they think tapu. And that water was used for uh, christening babies or for pude. Do you understand pude? Um, cleansing rituals and things like that. Um, so they were used also for pude, but they were used for special occasions. Uh, that's how sacred that water was. And it's not until it gets infused with the Modi. Now we're back to talking Modi again. The Modi of Papa Tuanugu and Tanete Waiora that it turns into Wai and we can then use it to drink. Pretty cool, eh? So we get down to the idea that uh, those waters then flow back into those underground aquifers. Uh, Pipi and Wawai, they also flow through Taitu and Taioro, uh, through all these other waterways. And anyway, so that's briefly the, some of the ideas that sit behind uh, our understanding and our connection to water, because we are water. 
when they, when people say kowaiyo, you think, oh, you know, they're saying, who am I? What's well, actually you're saying, I am water. And kowaiyo, oh, you are water too. But we are all water when you go back to it. And what we do in, in, in teaching our tamariki about water uh, is that we are water. We are connected to the environment. We don't stand aside and have a look at, hey, what the heck's going on over here? We need to do this and do that over there. We actually kind of go with the flow, okay? It's about resilience. We know the climate's been changing all the time. We have references, uh, uh, Tommy mentioned one earlier about there was a time when our tūpuna never sailed the seas. And it was because there was just huge, huge waves. Um, uh, tsunamis. There was a season, there was a long, long period of tsunamis. And so they never sailed. Some of the waka were wrecked. And so um, they had this, uh, the climate change for us happens all the time. Okay? And how we indicate and identify when climate is changing, when things are changing on the surface, it changes faster, quicker, in the, what we call uh, So in, in, our, in our world, we say tuia ki te rangi, tuia ki te whenua, tuia ki te moana, e rongo te po, e rongo te ao. And it talks about how everything is connected, from the rangi in the sky, uh, the whenua, and also the moana. And how we know that connection is, well, if we have a look at, uh, at the Pohutukawa tree, has it come up yet? No. But there's a picture of a Pohutukawa tree up here. I know I saw it earlier. If we have a look at the Pohutukawa, the Pohutukawa is closely related or in, in tune with a special star called Rehua, Antares. And uh, Antares, when she rises in the east, it sits on the horizon in the face of the sun. It triggers the flowering of some of those ancient Pohutukawa trees. So if you know the timing of when she rises in the east, you can tell when some of those Pohutukawa trees are going to flower. And uh, there was a professor up at the university, I hope he's not here. Um, he was kind of putting this sort of thing about everything being connected. And, uh, and I said, oh, you know that Pohutukawa tree outside your house, sir? Tell you, I'll use Mataranga Māori and I'll tell you when it's going to flower. Uh, 8th of December, half past five in the morning. And said, now you use your Western science knowledge and you give me a time and a date. Couldn't do it. But he got up that morning because he woke his wife up. His wife told me, he said, yeah, I got woken up. He said, hey, it's flowering, it's flowering. How did they know that? I mean, it's understanding the connectedness of things. Eh? Um, and so when we have a look, at what's happening in the sky, nothing's much is changing up there. Things move around, but there's nothing much changing up there. But on the ground, in our forests and in our in the environment on, on land, heaps of changes. And one of the changes we noticed some years back was the uh, flowering of a plant called the kohurangi. Uh, for those geeky people who want to know, Brachyglottis kirkii. But I think if you Google kohurangi, it'll come up. Um, so th that used to flower around sort of towards the end of August. Um, last three years it's been flowering in the first week of July. Huge change. So we know that things are happening and changing on the land just by watching uh, basically when, when 
things are happening in the ngahere. And so we, we can track it because we have seven phases of summer. From matiti kura, matiti hana, matiti mura mura, which we've just passed, we're now into matiti kaiwai. Uh, Matiti Raurehu, they say is past as well, just came briefly and went. Um, and then we're waiting for the Matiti Rau Tapata phase and the Matiti Rau Angina. The Rau Tapata phase is an interesting phase because that's when the seed pods in the bush burst and you can hear them falling to the ground. And if you're near a uh, uh, Kauri forest, don't go into the Kauri forest because they drop the whole cone. Hey, you'd be pretty sore, I reckon, if one dropped on your head. So. I'm jumping all over the place at the moment, but that's cool. Uh, I like doing that. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things I thought that I will bring up is around the, uh, not of just around how things are connected, the sky, the land, and to the moana, but the most important part of our environmental science is the corridor around erongo te po, erongo te hau. And te po represents the female uh, element and tao represents the male element and in any environmental work that we do we strive to keep those in balance and that's one of the things that uh, a lot of the work that we do in environments they get out of balance because you start focusing on one thing uh, but in our, our Maori worldview around uh, around environmental sciences we have to keep everything in balance and I hope someone's uh, giving, can you give us a tweet about three minutes before? No? Okay, we'll carry on then. We're teaching our tamariki not to look at anything, uh, at things in isolation. And so when we're looking at, for example, water quality testing, you need to understand the environmental elements that are present. And so we teach them uh, about tafiri mate. You first all know tafiri mate? That two of all the winds. It was the Christians that called them gods, but they were personified uh, members. Of, it, it, we gave them, it was, they were personified um, from natural elements. So Tafiri Mate looks after the winds, the low winds. Okay? And um, his younger brother, Tafiri Rangi, he looks after the high winds, the jet stream. And so another professor at the university, a different one this time, he said, how did your ancestors know that there was a jet stream? They had no um, instruments to measure it. And I said, yes, they did. It was called the kuaka. You all know the kuaka? The bar-tailed godwit. Interesting bird. So before it leaves to go back to Siberia, I think they have a stopover at the South China Sea. But before they go, the lead bird takes them up and they're testing. The old people say they're just testing to see who's strong enough to fly back. Okay? And they, but the second job that those lead birds do with those big curved bills is they're detecting the presence and the change in the jet stream. And so when the jet stream turns, they rise up thousands and thousands together. They rise up into the jet stream and they go home. Oh, well, to the South China Sea, Japan and around there. And I said to this, said to this professor, you're the only dumb buggers who fly in a headwind for eight days, eh? But here's the interesting thing about our tamariki that we're teaching them. 
and has not been in our education system, uh, well, since our education system was, was created over 100 years ago. And this is our environmental knowledge and science, that we have over 700 names for different winds. 700. Hawaii are collaborating with us because this knowledge came from Hawaii. So when I talk about Mātauranga Māori, uh, one minute ago, so when I talk about Mātauranga Māori, uh, forgive me, it should not be Mātauranga Māori because the Mātauranga was brought down from the Pacific and it was adapted to the Southern Ocean conditions. And so we have, just quickly, we have uh, like 100 names for the mists, 150 for clouds, 200 for rains, 300 for snow. And that's part of the work that we're doing with our tamariki to understand the taiao and environmental science from a Māori perspective. And so we're coming to the end, so I'm going to ask this group down here, what did you come up with? 8.20 a.m. Pretty cool. That's called Ngā Taipariata. So on that day is Rākaunui. Rākaunui is around the full moon. You will always get high tides in the morning. Okay, on the west coast it's a little bit earlier. So what was the date you guys down there got? What, what day did I give you? I didn't give you a date. 20... 21st, 21st, same date. Okay, what time? Someone give me a time? West Coast. What time? Yeah, cool. It's always three hours earlier. Cool, easy, eh? In Maramataka stuff, that. Down the back there, what date did I give you? 29th of March. What time did you come up with for high tide? West Coast, sorry? Get out of here. <laughs> Kia ora, thank you. Afternoon tides, you can't fool me. Maramataka tells you the tide, afternoon tides, tangaro days, fishing, okay? And this last group in front here, what day did I give you? 4th of April. Oh, there's a, ooh, there's a fiddle day. It should be high tides in the morning. What time did you get? 11.11? Yeah. 10.26. Yeah, that's cool because it's a little bit later than the actual full moon day. So the full moon and the uh, Rākaunui and Fido are at the opposite ends of the calendar. And so the Fido tides, even though they're in the morning, they're about mid-morning. Whereas on the Rākaunui days, on the, you'll get the high tides, what we call a taipariata. It's at, at almost at daybreak. And if you understand the maramataka, which is how our tūpuna found their way around the world, you also understand the tides. So if you connect to the maramataka, the types of days that we have, you are also connecting to the tides. Kāpai? Confusing for people? No, okay. Well, I think my time's up. So, hurinoi tōtātou nei whare. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, kia ora mai <laughs> Kia ora, Riviata. Tell you what, why don't, why don't I know that there are seven, seven parts of summer? Because we're, 
white people just go, it's summer, lasts for a really long time, and we complain about it until autumn comes, <laughs> and then we complain about the winter. And it's interesting talking about the kai and why, because of course looking at lawa and uh, uh, and what they're looking at now, measuring not only the, sort of the nitrogen and the phosphorus, but also the macroinvertebrates and things like that. Looking at the life within all of those waterways as well. So, the more that I hear around people's different discussions and their relationship culturally and spiritually with water, the more I think we're all the same. You know, it's affected all of us for all that time. So, ladies and gentlemen, our fantastic presentation, please again, Hawaii to Pakipaki. Thank you. Veriata will be staying with us. I'm now going to introduce uh, our panel as well. Uh, if our panellists would like to come up, we'll start with uh, Tama Terangi. He is uh, representing Ngāti Whātua. He is going to be here. Tracy Brown, Chair of uh, Dairy NZ and a part of the Dairy Environment Leaders Forum. Tracy Brown is here. We have Dr Ian Boothroyd, ecologist with Boffa Mystical, and Andrew Chin from Auckland Waters Portfolio from the Auckland Council. Please, a round of applause for our panellists. So we're going to rapidly roll up through a conversation with them. We're going to go to a question each. We're going to keep our answers relatively as simple and as quick as we can because there's a lot of questions of the crowd and coming through as well. So uh, let's start with Ririata. Uh, um, you've introduced us to a lot of those concepts behind the Māori worldview and the Māori view particularly around, around water and life. How do you think we can apply that Māori worldview within the bureaucratic systems of New Zealand local government to deliver better water quality? Probably never will, <laughs> because the bureaucratic systems do not align with the um, the systems of uh, um, Maori environmental knowledge around Maramataka. Because Maramataka doesn't have a weekend, it doesn't have a holiday, <laughs> and so it it doesn't align well actually with any of the bureaucratic systems that rely on the Gregorian calendar. Do you think though that you know looking at the macroinvertebrates, looking at all that that light, the kai for the kai? there's a change there as well. I mean, that, that's sort of an alignment, isn't it? A little bit? Well, is that, Or is that just an ecological we, thing? Well, what we do is we watch the migration of things like eels and uh, the fish, the takeke, when they come in land. Uh, we're about to watch the migration of the eels very shortly. And all those seem to be running to, to patterns and to plans. So you can say that the eels would be running at uh, Te Oturu, the Taifanake, at Haupadua. So if that's a maramataka identification of the time and, and when those eels will run, and they seem to be running on, on track at the moment. Marvellous. Tame, Tamori uh, Otewai, it's probably a new concept for a lot of Aucklanders. How do you think uh, the vision of Tamori Otewai will help non-Māori Aucklanders collaborate to achieve better water quality? These are great questions. Who wrote these questions? They're very good. They're good. I guess the opportunity to try and align, if you like, the options that we have. And if we are going to continue to promote how we are in tune or in balance or in line or in integrated with nature, then maybe it's time we started to take a few lessons out of nature. And there's two important factors of what Red Outer has presented today. One is the, we must continue to strive for a balanced approach that has clear alignment of matters that occur naturally. And our part in that whole cycle or circle 
as humans, as ordinary citizens of the world, we really have to adjust some of our individual thinking. And for a long, long time, we have waited for leadership to come out of academia or halls of philosophy or parliament or Wellington. And there is enough evidence now to show that that has not worked. So we're either out of balance, out of alignment, or just completely out of whack. Do you think, because it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, you see this um, Te Māori o Te Wā in these documents. Do you think people are frightened of it? Do they think, oh, what, what does this mean? Is well, it going to take something away from me? Am I, I guess, right to do something? Yeah. There's a document there. It's a discussion document. Have a look at pages 7, 15, 16, 37, and 42. And that'll give you an idea of what this is all about. And I guess the option, as uh, Rediata has already outlined, it is what distinguishes this whole opportunity from a number of other approaches. And it's not to say one is better than the other, but again, it is about getting some kind of balance and harmony and integration or alignment. Kia ora. Kia ora. Tracy. We're going to talk about that rural kind of sector as well. Yeah, you know, there's a, also a very strong cultural and spiritual relationship with water and waterways amongst that rural sector. You would know that, particularly amongst farmers uh, and, and people who have the pleasure and the privilege of living out in that part of the world. Uh, Auckland, we think of it as having a you know a, a pretty big urban footprint, but actually most of the region is rural. Streams and waterways running through all of that rural land. You guys are in the gun, bloody farmers, always doing the bloody farming thing with all your farming, you know, in those places we want to put subdivisions. Uh, what do you think in farming practices in, in this particular area around, around the harbours and the beaches? Anything needs to change there? It is changing, I'd argue. It is changing. Yeah, kia ora, um, Raira. Kia ora, Tato. Um, firstly, thanks to the Auckland Council for having me here. I do feel um, a little bit like a lamb to the slaughter, <laughs> to use a farming pun, probably the only farming person in the room, and we do feel it a bit sometimes. We feel this kind of urban-rural divide, especially last year or the year before, pardon me, leaning into the election. So the reason I'm here is to try and help with the urban-rural connection and turn that around and try and build a relationship. So um, first of all, fundamentally, we need to understand that every single land user has an impact on the water. Every single person, you know, every single person in this room, every single person in a community. And we do get into the situation where we like to blame people, and we hear that a lot, that the farmers have stuffed the waterways up, they don't care, all that kind of stuff. Well, let me tell you that we do care. We see ourselves as kaitiaki, um, guardians of the land. We, we want to care for the land for future generations, and we've been doing a lot. So in terms of um, what's happening in Auckland, there's only like 200 and something dairy farms, which is hardly any. For a start, there's 500 and something kilometres of waterways fenced and there's 1,300 and something um, culverts and bridges. So there's a lot that dairy farmers have already done. But in terms of what else there is to do, so pardon me, as an industry, um, we have um, good farming practices, good management practices that all of agriculture signed up to, whether you're dairy, sheep and beef or cropping. So that's really exciting. Um, and there's 21 principles in that. We also have farm... Um, Farm environment plans, so the industry's working at doing that, and that's all about identifying, mitigating, and and getting rid of risk, or you know, reducing your risk. 
Um, so we're working in that space. We've also got um, catchment groups happening across the country and um, Trish is here from Fonterra and I've, I've just heard tonight that there's actually of the 50 catchments across the country, there's going to be three in Auckland. Um, so that's really exciting. So there's lots of stuff that um, farmers are doing and can do. And the technology around it's changing as well with um, yeah. the likes of some of the tools coming out from Balance and, and Ravensdale, you know, because they know that they've got a legacy and they want to be around too, so they're helping people, particularly in the application of nutrients and things like that. So do you think there's so there's a lot more going on in that rural sector than, than people, perhaps urban dwellers, may actually realise? There is so much going on. And even just yesterday I was at a workshop with the ICCC about greenhouse gases and like how we're going to deal with that you know, for agriculture. So there's so much going on, and I think farmers are actually not that great at telling the good news and telling the good stories. And the stuff that we've been doing on our farm, we've been working in this space for 25 years, um, but never really told any about anyone else about it. And you know, there's a lot of other people doing the same thing, so. Marvellous. Uh, Ian, hello. Dr hello Ian Boothroyd. Uh, it's a problem with our water that we're trying to squeeze, this is a good question, are we trying to squeeze more people uh, and we're squeezing them into urban areas, there's higher density um, versus sprawling out onto those green areas. Well, Where's the problem? What's the biggest problem? Is it is it the urban density or is it the sprawl? Well, the answer is probably a mixture of both, as you might expect. Um, actually, just turning to that question of the rural environment, I mean, one of the biggest risks to water in the rural environment as the land gets developed is actually the loss of waterways as they get... Um, sort of swallowed up in some of the, the subdivisions and so on that are planned. And although there are mechanisms the council have to minimise that, um, it's hard to imagine that we're going to get the number of people we want into Auckland without the loss of some of those waterways. And um, that's really important for our water quality because those streams are the kind of um, the veins, if you like, the arteries of our water quality. Um, being an ecologist, I mean, one of the great um, opportunities we have is to really look at our management of those ecosystems of our waterways. And that in particular is at a, at a scale. It was nice to hear that catchment scale that you mentioned, uh, Tracy, and a number of them in Auckland. And looking at that scale is really where we need to be focusing our efforts for maintaining and improving our water quality, particularly in those headwater areas, you know, that sort of young, the small seepages and things, the little baby streams that are Im imperative to maintaining our water quality downstream. Because they're essentially the capillaries of, of the, the larger organ that is water. Do you think, I mean, are you just the scientific side of Ririata's conversation around the, the life in those streams, the, the mouldy of it? Are you, are you just codifying it? <laughs> I don't know about that, but we certainly look at it and we understand it in our own way, in our Western science manner. And in fact, you mentioned macroinvertebrates, but one of the great tools we have is we delve into those and take samples and then look at them and count them and identify them, spend hours on lab benches looking down microscopes doing this. Uh, but that does tell us the health and the condition of our waterway, so it's a very important tool. And sort of targeting, improving on those indicators and scores, if you like, is a very key part of seeing the improvement in our waterways and our water quality. And also there's a move, Andrew, you may be able to discuss this as well, um, of reconnecting communities with their waterways. Bring it, you know, you've seen a lot of work, probably, people probably might not quite know what's going on when they see a lot of that infrastructure being put in, with the, the bringing, people, bringing those waterways back to life again rather than just putting in those channels and, and running that water away as fast as you can. A lot of money being spent and time and effort to bring that mouldy back into them, Andrew. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think... With the water-sensitive design approach that Auckland Council promotes, it's really the old-fashioned style of subdivision where you 
tried to get the water away as quickly as possible and, and your back fences always backed onto the stream and it became a forgotten wasteland, a place where you threw your garden clippings and your rubbish. And of course all that rubbish ends up in the sea, as we know. Now we really want to try and make those areas part of the amenity of a suburb. They'll be bounded by parkage roads, become part of the areas that we value most. And, and what we know is if you connect people and communities with the waterways in their suburbs, hopefully they value them more. They're less likely to um, throw rubbish in them. And a really good example of this is in uh, La Rosa Gardens where we actually daylighted a stream that was previously piped. The park where this, the old piped stream was was always boggy and muddy, lots of antisocial behaviour. When that area was daylighted and became like a beautiful garden, something that the local school connected to, the incidence of antisocial behaviour dropped. It, it's, a, it's sort of creating that place where you can value that those natural places within your local suburb. We see that important. out west. We've got the excellent twin streams, um, my local water pond, the Lebanon Pond and uh, Lake Panorama. Um, great European names, uh, but essentially stormwater catchment ponds, but they're beautiful, there's life there. You think, it's, you know, and bringing the, the children back to things like this, is that a part of continuing that sense of, of the Māori of those places, that reconnection, or even just an explanation to kids and then on to their parents about the special nature of these, these waterways and these watercourses and, and a different way of looking at them? Yeah, no, yeah, and thank you for all that. Uh, I forgot to mention that great work you're doing with that daylighting of some of these streams and the really neat engineering work that's going in. Uh, but one of the things that we do, if you can reconnect our tamariki, our children, to those waterways, they start to change uh, their behaviour. We took some of our tamariki down to the outflow of the Puhinui stream and the young kids, and they cried. They just bawled their eyes out. And they said, why aren't we looking after these waterways? And these are six, seven-year-olds. So, yeah, if you can connect them and they see the, you know, the, the great work that you guys are doing there in that daylighting, they change, no doubt about it. Tell me, because it's not just, it's it, this kind of concept within there of Tamari uh, or Why, you know, once it's explained to people in English terms, in a way, you think they get it? I, I think so, and... Lediata gave a classic example of, you know, a, a two-syllable, two, two-syllable words, Waiyankai. If you get one of those wrong, the other sort of fails, and we, the end users of it all, we fail. So I, I guess the, the option and opportunity should be couched in terms of of people appreciating what occurs naturally. And it's going back again to that uh, idea of being in harmony, being in balance, being integrated, being aligned. Yeah. Tracy, do you use any of those kind of concepts, that terminology in that rural sector with the water leadership forums and, and various other things at Dairy and Z? What do you talk about? Do you talk about a spiritual relationship with water? Because we know that there is one. Yeah, we, we do. We, we've started um, rec more recently talking about the Māori view of the world and what it means um, in terms of the water and the mountains and everything, our ancestors, and trying to get people to sort of understand and connect that way. The other thing we often talk about is we talk about um, wetlands as kidneys. So the kidney, the, a wetland does for your body what a uh, does for the land, sorry. A kidney, uh, a wetland does for the land what a kidney does for the body. 
And we didn't know that, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago, when, and we called them swamps back in those days, and everyone went and, you know, Take, filled them in. I'm lower Waikato. I'm, yeah. I'm a swamp person. <laughs> you, you know I'm what? A you're a swamp My man. Yeah. And toes so, are wet, but I play a so banjo. now we call them this really cool thing called a wetland, and we're, you know, taking farmland out and planting them, and, you know, they're re- a really important part of the ecosystem, but we didn't know that, you know. We didn't even really know that probably 10 years ago. So. And there is a particularly, um, in, you know, within that rural sector, a lot rather than, you know, just putting it a pond, a lot of construct- <laughs> sorry, constructed wetlands and a lot of work going around about basically rehabilitating and rebuilding mm. the life of those environments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it takes a significant amount of work and time and um, we were part of the Fonterra Open Gates a couple of years ago and we had the opportunity for the visitors to plant trees and one lady had come down from Auckland and she planted a tree in a hole that was pre-dug so we had some students come out and dig the holes and she said, Oh, oh, that, is, I don't oh know, that is the kind of riparian planting activity God, I would turn up to. God, she said to me, gosh, are you going to have another one of these because I want to come next time but I'm going to get myself fit because that was really hard and, and this lady planted one tree in one pre-dug hole in a pretty flat kind of paddock well, you know, this and, and there's thousands of trees required 999,999 so, 999, <laughs> yeah. left to go. <laughs> Yeah. Ian, is it, I mean, it's, it is. Do you think within that sort of ecological world, and, and Andrew perhaps as well, I mean, you guys are involved in, in, in science and facts and construction. You're bringing a lot of this stuff into it as well. Well, we are, yeah. First of all, a lot of outreach in science is about engaging with uh, communities, uh, particularly young people, and bringing them on board to understand our systems and participate in some of those planting regimes. Um, and, but I think more importantly, it's making that connection with the water, which is really, really important. And just a little word of caution, actually, because in my own community north of Auckland, we did a great planting program along this waterway, and it was really, really successful, and all the community was out. But we can't actually see that waterway anymore, and we can't um, get to it anymore. So it's really important that you maintain the ability to be able to be connect with it and go to it and paddle in it and fish in it or whatever that might be. True. So I think there has to be a lot of um, careful thought around those programs that we, we manage for that Because they're, they're ongoing. You've got to keep the life alive. You can't just allow them to be overrun with gorse and blackberry oh, and privet. Of course, there's all of that. beard. Yep, all of those things and pests as well and possums, yep. et cetera. So there's a, there's a huge cost um, and there's a huge ongoing commitment to maintaining those. Which gets us, uh, Andrew. So I was to say, like, I guess on the council infrastructure side, we've often been really good at compartmentalising the way we manage water. We've got our wastewater, our water supply, stormwater. Now we talked about three water strategies. And when we started the process of this discussion document, they said, oh, we'll do a four water strategy. Let's include the marines and the streams and six waters it got to, and then seven waters, let's think about geothermal water. And then when we started engaging with the Kaitiaki Forum, um, they said, oh, you know, to to I, you know, it, you've got to take an integrated and holistic view. And I think the, the penny sort of dropped with us and said, well, this is actually a, a very powerful concept that captures this idea of treating it all together. You need to... What we realised is we couldn't do a strategy for stormwater without considering wastewater, without considering the water supply networks as well, or the streams that they discharge to, or the aquifers and so forth. And when we and, and trying to find a, a pithy and uniquely Auckland vision statement, Tamodio Tiwai really captured it once we started to understand it a bit more. So uh, that's sort of the path that we travelled on as we started to develop the document. Now, uh, questions coming in from the Slido. Um, 
and here's one because this is a this is a big one. We've seen Whanganui uh, uh, recognised as a person. Someone's asked along the side of this this kind of concept of treating water as this uh, with a spirituality and a, and a living entity. Um, is, is legally making the Hauraki Gulf a living being? Is that, con- is that being considered? Will that change what happens with with that? I mean, are, are we having a discussion on that level? Ririata. Uh, you have um, multiple bodies here. So you got Ngā Wai o Te Waitamata, Ngā Wai Nui o Peretu, Tikapa Moana, that flows down to, into Te Moana Nui Atoi. And so you got uh, multiple bodies different to what they're doing down in Whanganui, Kuau, Ko Te Awa, Ko Te Awa, Ko one water body. But up here there are multiple ones, so how you do that? And then you've got to go across to Manukau, eh? Yeah. At the Manuka Nuka Hoturua, the Kupunga Taramai Nuka, and all those corridors. So it's like a pretty a, tough. A why Fano? There's, a, there's yeah. a lot of individuals, and they'll all have different demands, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Tame. Well, I should declare I was part of um, the stakeholder work group that constructed the marine spatial plan, one of 14, and that's a non-statutory document that uh, is going through uh, some consideration for implementation now. And a couple of things happened in that three-year period. One of them was a, a national party politician from somewhere at the top of the South Island who arrived in Auckland and had this idea of creating a recreational fishing park within that water space. A point I want to make here is is that there is enough regulation in and around the legal framework to do a whole range of things. But the problem that we come up against again is that it's disaggregated and it is not aligned. So you have the Hauraki Gulf Forum, you have legislation there, you have the RMA, you have a whole myriad of regulations that could be fine-tuned to allow a more integrated approach and to begin to capture the essence of what's being said here of an integrated, aligned approach. Marvellous. Um, questions from the crowd? You're here. You've uh, just listened to three quarters of an hour of excellent presentations. Any questions from the crowd? Or I'll, I'll go back to the slider with some of you asking questions from there. At the back. Hello. Madam, how are you? Oh, there's a microphone uh, right behind you. There you go. Questions, not statements. <laughs> Two questions. What are we doing to help have better climate balance with more trees? And the other one is, what are we doing about 1080 in a newer catchment area, getting into our water supply, maybe? Maybe the, putting the 1080 on to stop the animals eating the trees. Um, I don't know. Uh, who wants to take care of it? So, because the, the more trees, that's, that's part of a strategy as well. You, you know, you're not just putting in concrete, you're planting Ab- stuff. Absolutely. And I think um, part of the programme, and if I was thinking about um, last year, um, Auckland Council um, approved a water quality targeted rate. And it's sort of my, my roughly 20 year career, it's the first time that there's been ring fence money focused on water quality outcomes. And a, big part of that program is the urban and rural stream rehabilitation. And of course, it's um, not just the in-stream, it's managing that erosion of the stream banks and those riparian areas. Um, And I think this is like, in the rural space, it's not just the stock exclusion from the waterways, it's that riparian buffer that's so important where we can capture a lot of that planting that acts as that filter. Here's my question, do you think people know 
Because we see you doing your stuff and we stand there and we go, I wonder what they're doing, spending a bit of money there for a while, bit inconvenient, I want to walk through that car park to get to where I'm going. Do you think people know or do you think maybe you should invest in some signs so that it brings people on board in communities, they can turn up to wherever it is that you're doing something and read a little sign that gives a big, it is a little bit of money, but it's outreach, um, to, that explains a holistic view as well as perhaps the ecological view and the cost of what a project is. And then people go, oh shit, I can see why they're doing that now. That makes, that makes all, that's fantastic. I can't wait for them to be finished. And then they become advocates for what it is you're doing. Do you think people know? I think that people know some of it, but there's, there's so much going on. And I think what, what I learned through, um, with this document, I've got an engineering background and I realised that I actually didn't have the communication skills for why I'd write a project that would communicate very well with the That's general That's why you public. guys employ a lot of comms people. That's why we hire people who can actually put things in plain English yeah. and tell their stories. We've got, yeah. Well, Toretto, I was going to ask you, you talked, mentioned twin streams previously. Yeah. And I think there's quite a lot of good signage around there. There is a lot of good signage streams. around there. Yeah. It's fantastic. They do that very well there. Y so yeah. there's a very good reason why we can to do that. But see, even around of something like a um, uh, some of your, your the new stormwater things, the, the swales and various other things, people just look at it and go, oh, jeez, I've just put some dirt in and planted some tussock and it's probably going to die. Um, do, do you think that even those little projects need explaining to people who live in the communities because they don't know what you're doing? Yes, and I think we've, we've actually got some very new exciting ideas, and this is part of what the water quality targeted rate has opened up. Um, these areas where there's more rain gardens... Uh, more swales in the roadway, they're um, filtering the water before it gets into the stormwater pipe. But of course it, it costs more to maintain. It's not just a piece of grass berm that someone, that, that the resident mows themselves. They, they take a little bit more specialist maintenance. And so some of the ideas that are being seriously explored at the moment is um, to create jobs for people in communities to maintain those so that local people will start maintaining the vegetation as like a garden, take some pride in their street. Um, two guys in a ute to um, use the extra cost, you know, what is a problem? Additional maintenance costs. Let's turn that into an opportunity, turn this infrastructure into a way to help um, drive the prosperity of our suburbs. So this is, you know, these are, um, this is the kind of thing. Because they're also not only they're doing their job, they're outreach people as well. People can go, what are you doing? And they can say, well, I'm doing this as part of this. It's a wider part of, of, of something else. Tracy, you know, uh, Aucklanders, we, we just outsource all of the cost of our structures. It's in our rates bills. You know, rural sector to a certain extent, you know, it's expected that they pay for that themselves from their, you know, their on-farm profits. Is there, is there a sort of a, do you think Aucklanders have a disconnect with that? Urban, uh, urban dwellers, in a way? Well, probably. Like, we absolutely, everything on our farm we've paid for. Um, you know, thousands and thousands of trees. Some regional councils across the country, you can get grants and things for subsidised fencing and trees. But it comes out of your farm working expenses, and it's just part of your business because you need to do it. Um, I was just going to um, add to what you'd said about the getting communities to look after rivers and things. On the 22nd of March is World Water Day, and um, I don't know if anyone's seen the Vision is Clear advertising and stuff, but it's kind of been a call to action for everybody to get on board and um, look after, you know, everyone to take actions big and small. And on the 22nd of March, um, 
the dairy industry in particular, but all of agriculture is encouraging everybody to take one action to look after the stream or local waterway. So how cool would it be if everyone in Auckland got on board with that as well? Really cool. utter. You know, having these people out there doing something like that, do you think that would be a nice sort of gateway for people, you know, to, to explain a little bit more around, you know, te Māori or te wai or some of the concepts around water, to allow them to look at their environment perhaps in a slightly different way? Yeah, we do that um, every year in, uh, along with uh, parks, with our parks department. We plant thousands and thousands of Shane Jones uh, trees. Um, but also in the planting of those trees, we also talk to them about the stuff that we're talking here today and reconnecting them back to that, uh, uh, those kind of old concepts. Questions from the crowd? Oh, there we go. Uh, hello. Uh, we've got a mic. Actually, we'll run a mic uh, over there. You can shout. Erosion control. Yeah, John from Erosion Control. I, 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 by default, we're involved in so many of your projects, bits, pieces, small ones, big ones, you know, across the board, across the country. Um, how do you deal with the challenges of sort of collating the, the, the goods and the bads? I often say like the projects and the outcomes are great and I, I congratulate Council on, the, on, on some of these daylighting projects and stuff you're doing, but how do you sort of, sometimes the process that I see getting there, I look at it so maybe it could be done better or bits and pieces. How do you, with such a big beast like Council and all the other entities involved, how do you, how do you I guess, how do you sort of reconcile all that information and, and make sure that you take all those learnings forward? So um, the data and, and, how, and data around water quality is a big job. Um, I'd say the, the, the way that we are looking at the catchments in Auckland are around the major, what we call it, the, the big watersheds, everything that drains into the Manukau, the Manukau watershed, and looking at that sort of super catchment scale, if you like. Um, and there's a number of tools and models that we use to look at the effects of all of our interventions. And, there's, um, and, and we're not um, inventing, you know, reinventing a wheel here. We're using science that's tried and tested from the United States through the, you know, the experience they've had in the Clean Water Act. And we know from those overseas experiences, looking at that catchment scale, when we're looking at offsets and allocation type issues, that you can turn around water quality if we look at some overseas experiences in Chesapeake Bay in the US or even the River Thames, you know, waterways that were dead, essentially, but through a long-term management. And I guess one of the challenges that we really have to think about here is this managing the expectations beyond a political cycle. Getting to the end point in a similar way to those overseas jurisdictions is going to take a very long time. You're not going to see an improved water quality result in the harbour six months after you finished Project X. It's a sustained effort in multiple projects to get us there. And the private individual has a huge part to play in this. Oh, we've seen that Raglan Harbour, for example, some of the, uh, a lot of the riparian planning there has brought all this, uh, the snapper spawning back again. And it happened in a, in, a, in a relatively quick time, but again, that work has to be ongoing. Hey, look, um, there are some questions as well, and some of the big ones, those, yeah, I think, is it 35 billion odd in the next 10, 20, 30 years, you know, um, around resilience? I mean, and resilience is a big question. Uh, we turn the tap on, water comes out, it falls out of the sky, and mostly it goes away somewhere. Are we, we, are we going to run out of water? because we haven't built a dam since 1977. We just outsourced our demand for water to the Waikato. That can't continue forever. We've got more people who want to drink. In the short term, no. no. The, um, 
Wurikia have got an um, application in for the Waikato. Will be, <coughs> the municipal part of Auckland is going to be okay for water till at least 2050. That's not very far away. It's nearly 2020. Yeah, so, yeah. In, you know. in my lifetime, sort of 30 years, I'm going to be pretty old. You'll still be drinking, <laughs> you'll, you'll still be drinking and wanting to have a bath. Yeah, but I, you're right. We do need to start thinking longer term. But it's, the, for, the, for our municipal water supply... <coughs> Some of these things are a little bit further off. But that doesn't mean we need to think about our personal resilience in the event of a natural disaster. Um, if we take a leaf out of Wellington Waters book, you know, after the Kaikoura earthquake, they realised if there's a catastrophic failure of their networks, um, it could be months before people could get you know, reliable and safe water back to their house. So Wellington Water have subsidised rain tanks to capture water. Now they, they, you know, those rain tanks are collecting the roof runoff mostly for watering the garden, but they know that individual households would have, you know, at least 200, 400 litres of water to see them through that kind of an emergency. So that's the kind of resilience I think we need to think about. But in, in terms of have we got enough water, municipal, yes, we're pretty good, but there's going to be pinch points in some of our um, communities, say, say like at Helensville, where they're not connected to the main municipal system. Um, in our rural spaces, you know, the, the aquifers, you know, they're looking like they're getting approaching fully allocated. You know, Pukekohe provides nearly, I think it's 80% of our fresh produce leading up to Christmas. And they, some, you know, if we have really dry springs and, and there's a fully allocated aquifer there, you know, the, the, these are critical elements to um, our water needs. So it's not just our municipal supply that we've got to think about when we think about across the region as well, Ian. If I can just talk to ecosystem resilience, I mean, you're right, some of those ecosystems can come back quite quickly if they're well thought through in the restoration process. Um, and that's why I mentioned the catchment scale is quite critical to that and looking out to those headwaters. So we have a lot of built-in resilience in our ecosystems if we just manage that process accordingly. And we're talking, you know, about the sort of the, that potable water, but also the, the sewage uh, water in some of our um, rural communities, and the, and the changes and the cost that's going to have to go into there. And we've certainly seen a lot of talk around um, uh, provincial cities and towns needing to spend a lot of money to tidy up their kind of sewage systems. That's a cost that's going to have to be incurred across the sort of, I guess, those rural communities in Auckland that aren't on the septic system. Yes, um, some of our. A lot of people think that the, uh, the water quality issues with Safe Swim identifiers is um, a lot of it's linked to the, the our wastewater networks and the stormwater um, con contamination. But actually, some of our um, really poor performing beaches are where we've got septic system, on site wastewater, Waiheke, Piha, Bethels. Um, these are, this is difficult not to crack. Essentially, you've got lots of houses on clay soils in small sections, um, it's a high risk. And, and a lot of those properties were built at a time when there was not much in the way of standards and regulation for septic systems. Yep, that's correct, yeah. So how we can improve those water qualities in those communities in an affordable way 
is a very difficult issue. It's a hard nut to crack. Yeah, because really, you know, um, that, that sewage, that, that effluent into waterways, it's anathema to everything in many ways that you've been talking about. You know, is there just that huge demand? Is, is there a prioritising, in a way, as to where you, within the kind of the, the, the water leadership forums and things, would like some of that money spent, Tame? Been involved in some of these discussions, have you? <laughs> well, I, I guess the the crunch point comes again from a disconnected band of citizens. You have a look at the last local body elections. The Maori voter turnout was languishing somewhere around 27%. So three quarters of the Maori population, the world's largest Maori population, ain't even fronting up to vote or to engage on what we're talking about here. And I guess there's a, there's a starting point that tries to encourage engagement at the community level, get involved in the 22 local boards and get and familiarise uh, ourselves with the lay of the land. It's pretty, uh, I mean, it's pretty evident even looking here, there's a strikingly large uh, single demographic in this room. White people, I'm looking at you. I, I'm, I'm one of you. <laughs> I think the point, the point though, that, that, that's being made here is, is building awareness is one thing, but then engaging in the, in the type of changes that are needed for these respective communities is, is critical. And having that level of turnout at, at uh, election time is a sort of quite a mediocre result, I think. We do have pretty poor levels of um, voter participation, that is um, for sure. Any questions from the floor? Yes, sir. How do you reconcile the tendency of rivers in water, uh, to meander with the requirement of town Okay, so the question for those people at home, this is a good question. How do you reconcile the tendency for rivers to meander? I'm going to look at uh, my river, the Waikato, used to flow out to the Firth of Thames. That is a hell of a uh, meander. It is now undergone with the requirements of urban planning and and... And, and, and property ownership. And property ownership. Yep, so obviously and if you've got a big farm and your river meanders through it, you're not going to be, you know, you're not that concerned if you lose 20 metres here or there if it's all your land. But in an urban context, if that river erodes and you lose half your section, you've got a problem. And if you think about the land values in Auckland, some people are facing significant loss. Essentially, um, we try to create a steady state in our streams, in the urban environment. And the old fashioned way was to line them with concrete and, and make them rock solid. But I think um, engineering has changed so much now. We, we, we are essentially, through a water sensitive design project, trying to achieve that um, stable stream but through a much more soft engineering approach that's trying to mimic natural processes. But oh, we, you know, we do try and we will try and reinforce those those bends and the meanders and the soft alluvium to stabilise them because it's people's property and, and it's their life. Sorry. L five trench sheeting. That is the most specific statement I have ever had. Ah, right. Great, we're going to have a long conversation about this afterwards. Hey, look, we're, we're very much running out. Um, that sort of that sense of that water censorship, water sensitive design. 
that's bringing a sense of that, uh, not only the, I guess, the ecological and the engineering sense back to it, but it's bringing some of that Māori and some of that spirituality as to what a watercourse should do back into it. Would you say, or am I wrong? Uh, no, one of the things that we're doing in our kura with our uh, kura kids is that we try and teach them about uh, not only their ancestral knowledge, but also to be creative and innovative around water. And so we'll send them down the street with this one knowledge, which helps them with their maths too, and helps me with my maths, that you get an eight by eight garage roof in Auckland, will collect about 30,000 litres of water in a year. And you get them to find out how much water is collected on one side of that street by using just that one uh, mathematical thing. And then what do you do with it afterwards? And that's where we have to with them, getting them to be innovative and creative about how we capture that water and how we use it in future. Because I don't think there's a shortage of water, it's just a shortage of how we store it and how we capture it. Absolutely. So, uh, look, we are pretty much out of time before we hear from Penny, who's going to wrap things up. Maybe uh, just a final statement. Can we have anything to do with water, with the future, with our relationship with water, whatever it may be? Could be a hot fishing tip for a good day to go fishing. I don't know. We'll start. Um, Andrew, we'll start with you. Uh, one, one final statement around the, this conversation that we would have with water. It's a, it's a plea to, to put your feedback in. Um, it is a discussion document, and you might think, oh, what's the point in, in feeding back? But the submissions have weight. Numbers have weight, and they do have influence. So the, the more people that get engaged and touch on this, the more likely we are to achieve what we hope is a broad um, consensus, the broadest consensus we can get, because there's going to be some tough decisions in the future around water, around flooding, climate, um, the rights to take water. But at this stage, if we can all be part of the conversation, we can at least agree a framework and the values and the outcomes and why we are doing it, so we can hopefully grab that consensus. Marvellous, essentially, in some way, uh, emphasising what Tommy was saying, being, being, being a part of this dialogue and conversation and participating. Ian? Well, I'd actually just endorse that, really, that, that connection back with water and in this discussion. Um, my view is that, you know, a lot of the science we know, we're not, it's not about doing more and more science and research. I think innovation in some of the technology is highly relevant, but it is about making decisions, making the right decisions and, making the, and putting them in the right prioritisation. And that's something that Auckland has to have a discussion about, and you all need to be part of that as well. Tracy. Um, thanks, Radar. So in the ag sector we have the Tohono movement and they have a saying called Itanui and it's about um, small actions and big actions can have big results. So it's about the, the big things like what your council can do plus it's about the little everyday actions that we can all do as individuals and the choices that we make and all that together will make a big difference. Little droplet soon becomes an ocean kind of thing. Tame. Yeah, kia ora. Kia ora tato. Thank you for your uh, attendance tonight and I I just look at the discussion document here and, and hope the two youngsters on the front there are part of the review panel that looks at the decisions that are taken at the end of this discussion uh, document process, all your submissions that come through, and I hope those two youngsters there are sufficiently robust enough to make a judgment call on what our predecessors decided for their future. Uh, kia ora. I think that uh, for me there are two distinct world views on approaching water uh, in an approach to water and I think that the Maori world view uh, 
should stand on its own and the Western science worldview should stand on its own as well and one should support the other in the, how we go forward from here. Well, thank you very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, we're going to ask Penny to come up and just uh, sum up. Hello, Penny. Got a couple of questions for you after this about the Waitakere Natural Heritage Area where I'm thinking of purchasing a land in the very near future. Hey, um, before she does, please, uh, what a wonderful panel. Homai to Paki Paki. Round of applause for all of our panellists, Andrew, Ian, Tracy, Tame, Ririata. I'm probably going to go. You're going to wrap it up, Penny. Um, and and, and like, these conversations are fantastic. I will never go and look at the season of summer again, knowing that there are all those little inf infinite variations of it. It's one of those things that I love in a conversation like this, when someone, when someone presents some information about something that we live and see every day, and we look at it in a totally different way. So um, hopefully you've all got something out of this. I think it's been a, a, a wonderful sort of session. Um, and do please participate, because you know none of these issues are going anywhere. Hello, Penny. Kia ora, welcome. Again, a round of applause for our panellists. Oh, kia ora. First of all, I just want to acknowledge this wonderful panel, and I've got a few words to say um, shortly. But thanking all of you for being here, and particularly thanking Aucklanders who, at the last annual plan or during the long-term financial plan that Council consulted on, you voted overwhelmingly to support a targeted rate for water. And I think, as the panel said, this is extraordinary. Aucklanders said water matters, our harbours matter, and the state of water matters. And I, you know, for that, I think the aroha and heart that went into that decision. Thank you. But we have much to do, and I think I just want to touch very briefly on, on what some of our panel members said. Ririata, thank you for your wise korero and that linkage between um, kai and why. We talk about you know, the macroinvertebrates and the state of the, the system, blah, blah, blah. Kai and why, what a sensible way for us to actually view um, the state of, of our water. I want to acknowledge Tracy on behalf of the, the dairy farmers, you know, and I'm going to have a bit of a crack at us, urban Aucklanders. You know, we talk a lot with our noses in the air about dirty dairying as we drive our four-wheel drives around the streets of Auckland, shedding bits of asbestos and, and um, um, copper and fibres from our tyres and heavy metals from our fuel and we're destroying areas like Ngataranga Bay which is now so deep in, in heavy metals that it is almost unable to sustain life. So kia ora and thank you for your passion around raising these issues in the dairy industry. Um, our wonderful Tommy, Tommy, thank you. We sit together on the governance board that has been overseeing the development of Te Māori o Te Wai. And I, the thing that I really took from what you said, Tommy, is a little bit of that um, get involved, get active, get actioned about this. You know, there's a lot of talk and a lot of ra -ra -ra and a lot of jaw flapping, but there's nothing like actually getting in, being part of the system and making a difference. And also supporting people when you vote, and you will be voting in October this year, luckily I'm not standing so I can be pretty damn direct about this, ask those questions. What are you going to do about the state of water? Our water is in dire straits in the Auckland region. 
Don't listen to those people who tell you they're going to save rates or reduce rates, because they will reduce rates exactly as has been said, at the expense of our environment, at the expense of our people. I won't go on, but boy, I could. So don't take any of that bullshit at face value, because it's completely, it's a flawed system. The more we save, the more we degrade our environment, it's the thing that suffers. Stop me now. Um, I also want to acknowledge um, our wonderful Ian. Thank you for bringing that humane face of science into this. And particularly, I love you for giving big ups to Project Twin Streams. That was my baby back in old Waitakere days. And I think we can learn from experimenting, being brave, and not solving all the problems. We're not going to solve everything, but damn it, we have to start. And I think that's for that I really appreciate it. Finally, from the panel, my deep thanks to Andrew. This must make a change from schlepping around talking septic tanks, which is part of what Andrew's job for the last little while has been. Um, you're an engineer with heart and vision, and I think we're in very good hands for your bravery in taking on this role. I also want to acknowledge our wonderful radar. To radar, as always, you use your fame and your capabilities for good and your passion for the environment is legendary, and we thank you. So action points, get involved, stand for council, vote for people who'll stick up for the environment, join TAMI as we you know, change the face of council for people who actually get this stuff. The um, Water Day on the 22nd of March, it's actually my grandson's birthday, so I'm pretty committed, he's seven, um, and I want a water future for him. So it's a real inspiration to get out there. Do small things, do big things, get active, get involved. But mostly, get involved in Te Mori o Te Wai. Have your say, put in your submission, challenge us, challenge the thinking. You know, some of the stuff we've heard today, let's start those hard conversations. Let's talk about, you know, how do we actually reduce our water use any further? How do we get subsidies for water tanks? How do we each take action? You know, for goodness sake, turn off the tap when you're cleaning your teeth. I want to slap people when they leave that tap running. And think about that beautiful, precious, potable water gifted from Tainui and the Waikato that we flush our toilets with, that we waste, that we, as Terada says, that we never take a moment to acknowledge and respect that water that's servicing us. So start those challenging conversations at dinner parties. And finally, take time to think about future generations. The things that we enjoy on these magnificent harbours are not ours to mess with, we borrow them from the future and we actually owe it to future generations to treat the sacredness of water as Māori have done in the past and guarded it for hundreds and hundreds of years that we have taken possibly two generations to destroy. We need to think seriously on that. So kia ora, thank you most warmly for being here and let's go and enjoy one of the seven parts of summer. It's out there tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.